Storymakers. I'm Angie Bowers. I'm Elizabeth Stark. And, and this, this is Storymakers Show. And we are here today, live and in person, in our dining room with Peter Coyote, who in many ways needs no introduction and who has graciously agreed to introduce himself. <laughs> the world's shortest bio. I came from nowhere and I'm working my way back. Mm. Oh. Mm. That's sort of deep. That is deep. <laughs> well, uh, we are very grateful that you are willing to take the time and share part of your smoky afternoon with us. And for those who aren't aware of the neighborhood, I just we aren't smoking. It's just smoky outside. So fires in California are blowing through. Yes. Apocalyptically. Yes. Um, but Angie, what are you working on? Well, right now I'm doing a fair amount of work for some clients and wrapping up the, you know, bits and bobs from the film. Editing so, a, I mean, you're, oh, you're editing a commercial film and you're finishing up your narrative. Well, film for the commercial one would be an overstatement. I'm wrapping up a corporate video <laughs> and, and uh, yeah, working on film festivals for the, Angie just finished yes. her first feature, narrative feature film, writing, directing. Really? And Cassie produced it. Feature oh, length or a short? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yes. So I've written twelve. Wow. I've yet to see one made. Ah. I mean, uh, they've been optioned. Uh-huh. I've got several out cruising around. My sweetheart and I are writing a TV series, a reality show, and another film. It's a long process, and you've actually done it. Well, we paid for we it. We did a micro, so. micro budget, like crazy community volunteer. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I mean, made. Yes. It's made. It's fun. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> no, it's, it was a very exciting process. So that is, you know, as as we like to talk about, it's the asymptotic nature of all the details of getting it to the finish. Quite so, yes. Done. Well, I was also going to say, uh, many a grand star, no names, please, <laughs> has made their living doing corporate videos. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, and I got more notes from my agent who was loving, loving, loving the new beginning of my book and then not so much loving the old ending of my book, which now has been, I guess, badly set up by the new beginning. Ah. You know, so I, I changed what the husband did and now she doesn't want the wife to get back together with the husband. <laughs> so I guess it was too egregious. Wow. <laughs> so I'm fiddling. Again. But now I've become so used to it like I'm just like okay we'll just throw that out we'll just throw something else in and this is how it works so I'm laughing because you have an agent <laughs> <laughs> well the, that's thanks to you which we'll get back to you in a minute so I uh I never had an agent for my second book but my publisher liked it so much he just bought it and I forget what I did with both dollars, but <laughs> it's been... It's, but, so you're, you had a, an agent the first... I, I had an agent for my first book who really dropped the ball and was so bad, I took the rights back from him after a number of years. It's sold 50,000 copies. It's been in print since 99. It's called Sleeping Where I Fall. It's about the anarchist left of the 60s. And then the second book was called The Rain Man's Third Cure. And it's about mentors and teachers. And uh, the, the third, you remember Bob Dylan had this line, the rain man gave me two cures and said, jump right in. The one was Texas medicine, the other was railroad gin. And like a fool, I mixed them and they strangled up my mind. And now people just get uglier. So I thought about that and I thought, well, okay, Texas medicine must be peyote. So I let that be a trope for the world of love and collaboration and ecstatic visions. And and then I thought uh, railroad gin must be the go juice of robber barons. So I made that a trope for the people who pursue status and wealth and mm -hmm. competitive standing and all those things. And the third cure I didn't discover until I was late 30s, early 40s, which was the possibility of wisdom. Mm -hmm. So when I was young, I thought love or power were the only choices and you had to get the mix right. Love without power was just flaccid. Power without love was fascism. And... So that's what I did for the first 35 years. And then I started Zen practice. And I thought, oh, <laughs> oh. Yeah. 
So, um, and then just to, out of curiosity, so you you sold that book yourself? You just went back to the publisher. I just went back to my publisher and he bought it and it it did well. It was nominated for Best Creative Nonfiction in 2015. So then I wrote a book that until yesterday I thought was completely unpublishable. It's called... <laughs> We laugh. It's called Unmasked, mm -hmm. The Lone Ranger and Tonto Meet Buddha. <laughs> nice. And it's a conflation for many years. I have conflated skills that I learned from acting, particularly the wearing of masks to evacuate your own personality and allow another one to assemble with Buddhist tenets and meditation. And I've been teaching these mask workshops around the country at Buddhist centers. And they're like, the experience is kind of like an acid trip. Mm -hmm. And an acid trip is kind of like being flown to the Grand Canyon in a helicopter. You get there and the vista is awesome and it's magnificent and it changes your perspective. But the drug trip ends and you flew there in a helicopter. You don't know how you got there. You can't get yourself <laughs> back. So the, the mask exercises are like that. They when a new personality comes in, it does not have your conflict, shyness, self-doubt, second-guessing. The mask character may have their own dilemmas and problems, but they're not yours. You can just play with them and deal with them. So the, these games and exercises that prepare people for this experience are lost leaders. And the point that I make is you can fix these things permanently in your personality by meditating and learning a Buddhist description of the world. So because there's a lot of scholarly explanation like about the non-fixed self, like there is no organ in you that corresponds to yourself, which means that if there's nothing there, there's nothing about yourself you can't change. Habits, afflictions, implications, not afflictions. Um, anyway, so wandering through this uh, book, is a parable about the Lone Ranger and Tonto who are riding around in the desert. They're overweight. They're out of work. Their scriptwriter died. They have no agenda. They don't know what to do. So they're sort of like all of us, you know. They're beset by existential woes. And they see this strange little guy in a yellow robe sitting in the desert. And they go over to check. And Buddha sees them right away. And he leaps up. And the first thing that he does is take care of their horses, unsaddle them, make sure they're okay, set them down. Somehow pillows appear. A little cup of tea appears magically. And they mistake him for a servant mm -hmm. of a wealthy man. And they've been trying to figure out how we're going to get back to Hollywood. And the Buddha reads the set. And so he just pretends to be the servant. And um, little by little, he tricks them into building a stone house to hide his master's treasure. And they're waiting for the master to return. And the Lone Ranger saying, we're getting back to Hollywood, Jay. We're going. We're going to be cool. And in the building of this stone house, they recover their physical health and their stamina and their strength. And little by little, they watch the Buddha meditating every day, and they meditate. And each of them has a kind of enlightenment experience that liberates them from being Tonto and the Lone Ranger. So it takes me that long to describe the book. And I thought, this is... So the first agent I sent it to didn't want it, but she loved it. She said, I just don't know how to sell it. And so she sent me to a woman yesterday... And we talked for an hour on the phone, and she made very, very astute structural readjustments. They're like very little rewriting, tiny little connective tissue, mm -hmm. because when you change things around, you have to change the, you know, the lead in and the lead out. But she loves it, and she has three ideas of where it could go. And she's an agent? She's an agent in New York, yeah. Her name's Laura York. And... Um, uh, the woman, Joy uh, Joy Harris, who's a big... Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. So Joy sent me to her. So I brought, <laughs> I brought my second book to Joy. We met, I sent her two chapters, and she said, this is fantastic. Uh, let me read the rest of this book. Wait, were they the first two chapters? First two chapters the of, the, of the second book, yes. yeah. Jewish, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I sent her that and I said, I'm coming to New York in a month. She said, send me the manuscript. Um, 
So I sent it to her and I came to New York and I invited her to my hotel for tea. And we talked, we got along like a house of fire. She's very smart, very shrewd. And we're talking and we're talking and I'm beginning to notice she hasn't said anything about my book. So sometime after the second plate of sweets and the third cup of tea, I say something like, um, I know you haven't mentioned my book. <laughs> and she said, well, it's, it's kind of like this. She said, I feel like I'm at a cocktail party at the canapé table, and I meet a guy who's just fascinating. And we start talking, and he's regaling me with stories, and it's just the most fascinating thing I've ever heard in my life. Around hour six. <laughs> so, I said, okay. <laughs> That's her description of your book? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... She didn't know what to do, but I did actually relook at it again, but she, she turned it down. But we got along so well that when I wrote the new one, I called her and she read it really carefully. And she said, I get it. I'm not the agent for this. I don't know where to send it. And she sent me to this woman, Laura, who by fate has a Buddhist therapist. And so by God, she was interested. So we'll see. I'm now rewriting and cutting and pasting and moving things around in different uh, different orders. But I'm excited to be sort of in play again. And, um, you know, it's, you know what, it takes years. It's my end of my third year working on it. Yeah. And um, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so did, sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> There's Angie's tea. Um, so, okay. So did you go to other agents with that second book? Uh, I had a couple of agents I went to, but um, no one else read it. Uh, you know, the wife of the guy who publishes Counterpoint, uh-huh. Vicky. Um, Jane. What? Jane? No. No, that's the wife now. She's a novelist, Jane Vanda, Jane yeah. something, something. Yeah. Anyway, but his ex-wife was an agent oh. who I knew very well. And I don't know if she never got back to me. Maybe she never got my email. And then I was not going to go back to my first agent, who was just a shitbag in New York. He just, he fought me for the um, the episodic rights. Uh, you know, when they release a yeah. thing in a magazine episodically, he fought me for those t- tooth and nail and then did nothing with them and dropped them. Uh, so there was no nothing. Anyway... So I had other agents for um, like friends of mine who are Buddhist writers and they do spiritual stuff, but uh, it, it didn't say I wanted someone literary. Yeah. I mean, I don't actually usually ask that question. It's only because, and I want to ask you to tell the story about um, becoming an actor Paul um, Newman. The Paul Newman story. Oh, oh which oh. I've now told like myriad times uh-huh. because it was more times than you can count. <laughs> really? It, it, I mean, it serves you in some way. Yeah. So uh, you told it at Sonoma County Writers Camp. I'll tell it, but you have to okay, tell me why it you. moved you so much. Okay. Okay. So I had been working for Jerry Brown under his first two terms, and had made a real success out of the California Arts Council. Raised it from a $1 million to an $18 million a year agency, number two in the country, and New York and the NEA. People were coming in, copying my programs, finding out about it. And it was a great transition out of 10 years in the counterculture. And when I came out of the counterculture, I came out of a heroin habit. I was a single father, and I was penniless. My The promised fortune that I was going to be left had disappeared. And I had been making maybe $2,500 a year for 10 years. So I needed to do something. And to show you how practical I am, I decided maybe I'd try to be an actor for a steady living. <laughs> so uh, I did. And I just got I just got very lucky. But it was a little more than luck. So my wife at the time, we were living in a Zen Buddhist monastery. And she said, you want to act? Go act. I'm staying here. I'm a Zen student. Sounds like my Yiddish grandmother. <laughs> you want to act? Act. I'm here. I'm cooking in the kitchen. So um, I thought, okay, Jesus, I'm 39 years old. 
there's better looking guys out there who are younger and equally, if not more talented. What am I going to do? How am I going to go to Hollywood? I thought the only way I can possibly do this is to already be a star. And um, so I started analyzing movie stars that I liked. And I came up with the guy that felt the closest to me, Paul Newman. And so I started analyzing him like I would a character. Because you're going down, you're having meetings, you know, people are going to be giving you report cards. You're going to try to seduce them or flatter them or something, which you just give yourself away. So I thought about it. I thought, well, wait a minute. When Paul Newman goes into a room, he doesn't have to be charming or nice or flattering. He doesn't have to have any attitude or edge. He's made it. What's he thinking about? And what I decided he was thinking about was, are these people worth my time? <laughs> and it's a huge seismic shift of consciousness to do that. Because instead of sitting in a chair thinking, do they like me? Am I handsome enough? Am I talented enough? And just your power is leaking out your ass, you know, <laughs> while these guys are wondering when's lunch and do we get... Suddenly, these guys felt they were being appraised and you could see them get nervous or you could see them looking at me and thinking, this guy has something. And my agent tells me that I closed more auditions than any actor he'd ever met, every other audition for about 10 solid years. And um, then I developed a couple of other little techniques like I would ask them about their favorite subject themselves. I would say, well, what's your take on this movie? You know, I, I like the script, but I haven't, I don't, haven't heard your take. So they're talking and I'm gathering information about how they're looking at it and the characters and stuff like that. And then when it's time for me to read, I would say, okay, um, we haven't discussed this part. So I'll give you my first take on the character and then you give me notes and I'll just do it again, <laughs> which is, devious because first of all I've given myself a second reading and I've given myself a second reading by flattering them as a director because no director can possibly resist giving an actor notes <laughs> and um, that was it I got really lucky and I started just working all the time and then I aged out of leading man roles about 50 the last one I got was uh, Bitter Moon for Roman Polanski and that guy was such a deviant that deviant that he, he could never be a leading man in an American film. And then you go into a kind of steady state as a character actor and you work all the time. You don't get the girl or the big checks, but <laughs> neither do you have to get undressed and feign sex all the time, you know, which, which is just, you know, a sharp stick in the eye. Mm. Mostly so the producers can watch the pretty people hump. Oh, yeah. Those are my least favorite Scenes. portions. Of I don't. She yeah. can't watch any. She's like, such a prude about why it. Why are we forced into being voyeurs? I mean, in the '40s, when you saw a movie that people kissed and then they went to the room to close the deal, we've all licked and snuffled and pumped and humped, and we know what happens. Why do I have to watch you do it? <laughs> right? Because yeah. you get better at it. It's not not prudish at all, you know. And, it's, and, it's, and it is visually like. A, a, a sort of an absurd thing, usually, right? I mean, Listen, if... Not a pretty picture. I'm not taking liberties here. But if you've ever done it, there's, a, there's somebody powdering your ass <laughs> and a sound man who's next to your cheek while you're going... <sighs> and they're waving branches in front of the lights to cover your tattoos, you know? And the girl says, you're giving me a rash. I mean, it's just, it's like... <laughs> the least sexual place on planet earth yes. you know i did a film once called a man in love and with a wonderful actress named greta skaki and it's lucky we were pals because we were naked for two months and we would just be doing this thing and they would throw a moving blanket over us and we'd lay there and smoke and talk start naked until we're ready for you sir okay we get up and you didn't even get a sock. No. Oh, no, I had a sock. I had a sock. And they have these strange little things for women, which are like a tiny little cover, sort of like a, uh, 
what's the other thing like you use? Bes no, beside a tampon, there's oh, a, a pad, like, pad, like right? a pad, yeah. like a mini pad, yeah. you know? <laughs> so this is sounding sexier and sexier. Oh, yeah. No, this is this is hot stuff, you know? God. And then they are sometime are well <laughs> when I work <laughs> when I worked for Pedro Almodovar, there was a very famous transgender uh woman on uh Spanish television. And it was a he who had had the whole drill bit and scaffold thing. I mean, taller than I was, with a fantastic body. And I guess Pedro thought I would be prudish about this or not. He didn't know me. And we did 60 takes of a love scene where I had to kill her with an ashtray at the end. And it was the only time I had ever kissed someone whose mouth was bigger than mine. And it gave me such, such um, uh, tenderness for what women have to go through when their heads are cranked back, you know, and there's someone towering over them, you know, crimping their spine. But as far as that, it all looked all right to me. I was just great. We could do this all day. But it's not really very, it's not really very sexy. It's more comedic. Yeah, I like it. There should be, like, that should be a film. I, I always want to do the parody of every film I'm making. Mm -hmm. I don't care how serious it is. I'm cracking jokes, doing alternative lines. It's like, really? <laughs> so, yeah, so that's, anyway, that that story inspired, I, you told that story to the McKinney Writers Camp. I left the, you know, the room, the meeting hall, and I went back into my room and I started researching who would be my dream agent. Oh, if I were, your dream agent. If I were Jennifer Egan, or if I were Ann Patchett, if I were somebody who already, if I were Paul Newman, right? Like if I were my version of Paul Newman in the literary world, who would I approach? And I and I found Susan Gollum, who is, you know, uh, Jen, uh, Rachel Kushner's, Jonathan Franzen's, Mbolo um, Mbuye, like all these p amazing big people. And also I read the, uh, Jordi Rosenberg. Anyway, she also is very hands-on. She's very editorial, which I really wanted, which is good to remember as I'm going through my third draft with her. And... Um, and I and I went into her slush pile and and um, anyway. What know. is a slush pile? So instead of like I know you and you're gonna send me to your agent, you know who's gonna know, you know, oh, you know, this person's my friend, you know, like 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 previously. Oh, networking your way yeah, to someone. Networking. Yeah. You just send it, and you know the assistant gets okay, it. Okay, but in all fairness, your subject subject heading. heading, you know, you've been published by. A high question. level, right. so I definitely, but so. that was even even that was the last. I I had my first book, which was published, you know, nineteen years ago by FSG. Um, I had it, I had dropped like I had been, you know, a finalist for a couple of awards. They dropped out of my bio. I wasn't using it at all, and it was like it was just it was. It, I had to switch gear and be like, okay, I'm going to come at this from this place of power. That's right. And um, and I got three <laughs> offers from three amazing agents. And I did, and I had I had this brilliant woman telling me all her qualities. Was this on the new book? Uh -huh, yeah, this is my. This is yeah, my I see. Book. Oh, far out. I, had, I actually, yeah. So I had a book. I mean, I've written a million books. So you sent it to three people. Well, I sent it to probably ten people oh. or twelve people, but I ended up with three offers. So what was the equivalent of the Paul Newman detachment that you so, practiced? So one. Well, so it was more like the entitlement. It was like, okay, if I were already, if I already knew, I am, this is a win-win, right? This person's going to get to represent my book. Right. It's the reframe from, right. please like me. I see. To, to, hey, you know, I, and I. I got a prize from FSG. And, and, also, and I also was like, you know, here's, here's what I like about you. Like, here's what I see about you. Like, you want to know, you know, I'm saying to, to them, I see you and I see what's important about you, um. Totally get it. You know, and, totally get it. And, and I had to actually keep getting like coaching, and, and it's like normally I'm not shy and 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 nervous, but somehow with agents I can get very nervous. You know, the whole well, power. Why do dynamic. you say somehow? It's a totally power unambiguous power dynamic. Exactly, and they've perfected high status behavior. Yeah, they've perfected show me. Right. You know, I mean, it's like pitiless. Yeah. You know, and so just, and they're busy and they have many important. I mean, you know, my my agent is lovely, but you know, she was like. I'm sorry I didn't get back to you. I was like with the New York Times all day because Jonathan, this article about Jonathan Franzen is coming out. I'm sorry I had to go to the booker 
award, you know, because Rachel's wasn't the shortlisted. Right? So she's just super busy. Yeah. Well, that's a good. So who did you finally? So I so I signed with Susan Golem. Oh, the one you. The one that I was. Yeah. Like, she, right after your talk, I found her and I was like, Wow. And um, yeah. So anyway, so I. So do I get to commission you? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> well, you know, um, it's gonna. I'm gonna. Work. I'm so, so glad. That's so great. Yeah. <laughs> that's so great, though. I love that that worked for you. I have a friend who's an acting teacher, and he counsels his his students that when they go in for a piece of uh, audition, for a piece of audition, <laughs> when they go in for an audition, they secrete a piece of hard candy in their underwear. <laughs> so that they go in with a secret. <laughs> they just, nobody can know too much, you know, just, I don't care who you think you are, motherfucker. I'm you won't, yeah, you, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And if you treat me right, I'll let you hunt for it. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, so... Oh my um, gosh. <laughs> all right, so... Well, congratulations, well, Liz. I mean, that's you, great. Thank you for this. And you know what, I, I think... You know, and I, and I loved, I mean, I love the, you know, the, the, you, and you talked about egolessness and there was a little bit of like pushback because, and I think it was a little bit of like the, you know, me too, sort of like, who can you, who are you to talk about egolessness kind of pushback? I'm still doing it. I still got, I got pushback last, I, last night. I went, I went to Harvard for a week to teach about two weeks ago and it was the 50th anniversary of 1968 and I was talking about protest. Is this is this appropriate for this? Yeah, part? yeah nothing okay. Inappropriate. Um, it's story makers. Uh, so I was talking about protest, and I was reminding people that when the the civil rights movement was going on, black people were impeccably dressed, impeccably dignified, courageous beyond measure. The only time they raised their voices was to sing, and that as protected speech of the First Amendment has now become drowned in all speech because there's a guy at Harvard named Martin Reddish who turned the First Amendment on its on its butt by saying, oh, the principles of the First Amendment must mean the founders wanted people to be able to hear as many different points of view as possible, as opposed to having protection to say whatever they wanted to say. And that was picked up by the corporate sector, picked up by the judiciary, and now Corporate speech is protected. Corporations hide under the First Amendment. Uh, medical ads on television don't have to be true. It can be an opinion. It's protected speech. Well, as that's happened, our protests have become more and more shrill. And we've forgotten that a protest is an invitation into a better world. And people don't accept invitations when they're being screamed at. And the audience is not six white men around a table in Washington. The audience is the broad Middle West, the broad population. So I was telling these people, uh, using an example of the women who surrounded Jeff Flake in the elevator. Well, these are my sisters. I know what they're feeling. I know exactly why and all of it, but they were indulging their anger and they were not paying attention to how people in the Midwest and farm people who never were entitled enough to raise their voices to shout at someone. So imagine had they all been wearing T-shirts with a single word that said sister, wife, lover, niece, blah, blah, blah. And, and they were in the elevator and they just kept saying to him, don't be frightened. Mm. Don't be frightened. Just calming him like he was a scared rabbit. His vote wouldn't have changed, mm -hmm. but they wouldn't have been vulnerable to uh, Lindsey Graham saying, who do you want running the country, the adults or the kids? And then they cut to that elevator. If all the women supporting uh, Christine Blasey Ford had had shirts with her picture on it and gags around their, their mouths, they could not have been ejected from the sitting room, from the viewing room. So they would have been there every time the camera hit the audience. You would have seen these women, perfectly polite, but aiming their theater at the broad numbers of people that you need to win power. And without power, identity politics are just memes. So my argument is, yes, if we want to make an, a vinyl LP record about America, 
the America we want. Of course, you're going to have a cut about race. You're going to have a cut about gender. You're going to have a cut about sexual preference. It's not going to be the cover. The cover had bloody well better be about broad-based common issues, healthcare, training workers displaced by globalism, infrastructure repair to build the wealth of tomorrow, uh, global warming. Every place outside of Washington is scientific fact. And so I was trying to... <laughs> so I was trying to say, you are the media generation. You will be better at this than my generation is. But you have to remember what the goal is. The long game is a game of numbers and narrative and theater. And you have to discipline your own outrage. The world doesn't give a shit about your outrage. Nobody stirred about the massacres in Rwanda. Nobody stirred about the massacres in Bosnia and Herzegovina. They don't care. Next to that, our, our suffrages are mosquito bites. Mm -hmm. So you got to remember that General Mattis gave the game away when he said, be courteous, be polite, and have a plan to kill everyone you meet. That's the way those guys play, right? So if you want to play on that big board, you have to get the numbers to defeat them. And letting them letting them frame the Democratic Party as the party of black sexual preference and letting migrants in, you've lost. You've let somebody else frame you. And somehow you've got to find out where is the broad middle because democracy is a game of numbers. I forget why I got into that now. You were talking about being a The pushback. Oh, the pushback, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So last night I was, I was telling this at a symposium about the 60s in Berkeley and a really good writer, Susan Rice. Anyway, she's a friend. She's a really good writer. She said, well, I agree, but I want to push back about identity politics because, you know, we are outraged as women. We have been abused and disrespected and, you know, pushed into the background and abandoned. And our outrage is righteous. And I said, yeah, it's righteous to you and your friends. It's not righteous to people for whom that is not the central dilemma of their lives. And you have other areas in which if you want to protect race, gender, sexual preference, you have to win power. And then you can do it. And that's not going to be the trope that's going to win you power. Because by and large, that's not the dominant issue for most other people. Right. So audience applauded. I don't know what she did, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, it's interesting in terms of story making and theater and all yeah. the, you know, all the stuff we're up to. I think I'm still, I'm still in this moment where I just like, I'm where I, yeah, where I'm just not, I, I'm not, uh, I mean, I agree with you. I used to go, I used to go to protests in my great grandmother's like matching skirt and jacket suit, you know, like I would go be like blockading the bank in a suit. <laughs> well, did you see the women who were in the handmaid's tail uniforms? Mm -hmm. No. Do you know this TV series? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, there were 15 women that showed up at the Kavanaugh hearings outside in handmade tail uniforms. Right. You know, that's going to get camera coverage. But what does it get you to be dragged out of a Senate room screaming something that's virtually incoherent and off mic? It's an act of personal courage. I get it. It's an act of righteous indignation. I get it but it doesn't work. And black people understood that if they had behaved that way, they would have been massacred. So the pressure that was on them was literally life and death. And they responded as if their life depended on it. Well, I would suggest the pressure on all of us and our values is life and death. And unless we begin to respond according to those stakes, we are going to lose and we're going to be living in a fascist country. But we're not going to get there by screaming our outrage and saying, you hurt my feelings. Just Especially screaming it on Facebook at our friends. Who agree. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, that's another favorite tactic. Yeah. I mean, I've been writing these series of blogs on the Daily Cost, and I write them under another name because I don't want the movie stuff to get in there. 
and um, they're really well attended. But people treat disagreements as if they were moral transgressions. And I have to say all the time, listen, we're on the same side. What are you talking about? This is how we got Nixon. You know, we couldn't settle for Humphrey because he wasn't radical enough. So we got Nixon. Are you kidding? That's happened, I think. Here again, but um, I don't know what time it is. My walk it is two thirty-seven. Okay, so I just I want to ask this craft question about okay. memoir, um, which which is there's a, a segue in my mind, but it's probably too long to explain. It's, you know, except that I just think you've got this really interesting trajectory in the Raymond's Third Cure from kind of the diggers and and this sort of radical theatrical politics, and then into um, you know kind of state politics with the Arts Commission, and you, you know anyway. But what, my question is, so you, you know, now you have a third sort of memoir, but not really a memoir, but you've got these two memoirs. No, it's not a memoir yeah. at all, okay. actually. So you've got these two memoirs. And one of the things I think is so hard about memoir, I know this a little bit from attempting it and, and failing, but also from working with a lot of writers, teaching a lot of writers who write memoirs, is that you have this massive, unshaped life, and then you have to pluck out the things that are meaningful and true and put them together in a way that creates something that is cohesive and and has some sort of narrative logic to it and you've done this not only once but twice which means and I know like in this book you refer back to the other book you say if you want to read about that at length I've already gone over it here's the summary or I'm going to skip it right so you you are actually referencing that you have these two different right it's there as a placeholder in chronology yeah the reference back but I think it's, I think, I've seen it be very challenging for people to, to pluck out the part that's the story from the, that they want to tell from all the many, many things that happen in a life. And I'm wondering... What's possible and what you're talking about, sort of. Yes, I understand. Yeah. So, so can you talk, <laughs> can you sort of advise a little bit based on your own experience um, about, you know, about how you shaped narrative out of the... Like, yeah. I have two words, and it's Terry Bisson. So Terry Bisson is my oldest friend. I mean, not oldest, but I met him the first day of college in 1960. He ran off with your girlfriend, Gretchen. He did. He did. But I've forgotten. I've forgiven that. <laughs> but Terry is has won every Hugo and Nebula Award possible for writing his beloved science fiction. And he writes nothing with like ray guns and rocket ships. It's like he's a guy that can take one tooth out of a comb and slide you through that space invisibly into a slightly altered reality. And he's the shrewdest editor I've ever met. My first book, Rain Man's Third Cure, was 800 and something pages. And he returned it to me at 400. And I couldn't tell what he'd taken out. My (laughs) second book which I'd rewritten about 10 times. I gave it to him and he returned it 100 pages. I said, what? (laughs) He said, this is the spine. You can add as many ribs as you want, but this is the spine. And I literally don't have that talent. I don't know whether it's my narcissism that I think everything I write is fascinating and interesting. And this woman has put her finger on the structural dilemma of this much more intellectual book that I've written. Um, I'm not really good at structure. And so this is where a really good editor comes in. And unfortunately, most publishers these days are not giving you line editors anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, I was lucky enough with, with Sleeping Where I Fall to have a great line editor at CounterPoint. Mm-hmm. And you learn so much about writing. Do you mean this word or this word? Um, so I I would just never let anything out without sending it to Terry Bisson. I've sent 10 writers to him. And, uh, you know, he's modest and he just... He's just sharp as a razor, and I'm not. You know, I can, I can, I can tell a good story, but I can tell, you know, the story of creation in real time. (laughs) (laughs) Now, how about screenplay writing, which is so structured? Yeah, well, screenplay writing is interesting because it's it's quite ruthless. You know, there's a certain form; it's 120 pages, and. Some of the ruthlessness is almost ideological. Mm -hmm. You know, the best looking guy has to wind up with the best looking girl. 
I can I can give you the structure of 99% of movies you'll ever see. Uh, two people meet. Um, they fall in love. One of them commits a moral transgression. They fight. They break up. They come back together when the other one has seen the error of their ways. That's almost every film you've ever seen in Hollywood. So when I write movies, mostly I write comedies, which I really like. But the 10, 15 drafts, you know, that's a thousand pages for each final film script. And um, I guess the, the the proof in the pudding is that none have been made. <laughs> Although everyone says, you know, these are brilliant, not super commercial, but page turners or wow, what a good writer you are. And, you know, I've made 160 movies and I couldn't get a script made. So it's a really tough, tough arc. Mm -hmm. It's a tough business. Uh, how about reading? Because you 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 read audiobooks. I mean, you you people can. I used to read audiobooks. Did yeah. you learn anything? And you read your and you also did read. Your I own read books. my own, and somewhere somewhere along, I don't know, page forty or fifty of the Rain Man's Third Cure, I found myself thinking, "Doesn't this guy ever shut up?" <laughs> it's endless, endless. I stopped doing audiobooks because they don't pay anything. It's a three-day commitment, whereas I can make the same money in a, doing a voiceover for a documentary in an hour and 20 minutes. Um, I had fun doing them. I did, the, I did the Horse Whisperer, and I did eight different characters, and I did a lot of like Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, and a lot of the, the Four Agreements and things like that. My publisher wanted me to read these for the audiobook, so I did it. But I don't, I don't, you know, I don't enjoy it. Did you learn anything as a writer from reading these books out, all these books out loud, yours and others? I wish I could say I did, <laughs> but I don't think I did. I, I mean, I'm not aware of having learned anything, but I've read, I mean, if I say generically, I've read so many books. I've been reading since I was five. There's no plain surface in my house that's not piled in books. And there's something about having read that much which has contributed to my skill as a narrator. Mm -hmm. I know in my peripheral vision I can see if there's a comma, a semicolon, or a period coming up. Am I going to have to make a dismount? Are these phrases in apposition? Am I going to have to have the air to keep going? So I've learned how to read really well, but I'm not sure, like sometimes I think I'm a little fussy and old fashioned as a writer. Um, my, a lot of my, you know, ear was tuned reading people like Stendhal, mm. you know, and uh, my favorite, uh, uh, James Salter my hands-down favorite. Um, when I was younger, Fitzgerald. Um, There's a certain shimmery, luminous quality to, to a kind of prose that attracted me. Um, and I think sometimes I try for that at the expense of just a good, clean sentence. Mm. So I'm, I'm struggling with that as kind of an ethical or a character problem. <laughs> Yeah, I think people undervalue it's the good, clean sentence. So I think it's great that you have it on your radar because I think a lot of people still mistake the effort that goes into a simple, straightforward, quality sentence. <laughs> we mistake the florid for the fatuous. Yes. <laughs> no. <laughs> have you ever read Light Years? Mm -mm. Well, do you, you know, must know James Salter. I actually, I yes, but I haven't. I haven't actually read. Haven't read anything. Read well, do yourself a favor. Read Light Years. Okay. Just start okay. there, and then read um, A Sport and a, Plas a Pastime. I mean, he's, you know, Richard Ford said he's the master of the sentence, mm. and I, I used to have a notebook almost this size filled with quotes mm. from Light Years. Mm. It's so he's so stunning in his observations. It's like. I can read somebody like John Updike and I get his craft. 
I get that I will never approach his facility, but, but I don't like the guy. I mean, there's something about his voice and what he thinks is important. It just doesn't move me, you know. James, James Salter is like, gives you the impression that you're just looking at reality through a completely clear lens. Mm. And these objects and people and actions and characteristics just appear before you. The prose sort of almost disappears. But then when you go back and you look at how the sentences are constructed, they're just mind-blowingly good. All right. I'm totally Yeah, I'm telling you, you'll he'll be a wake-up. <laughs> Which leads us right into Steal This. Amateur oh. poets, borrow professional poets, steal. <laughs> what have you come across in your readings and wanderings that you would like to take and make your own? I took one this morning. I was talking to my sweetheart, who's a very, very good writer. And in the middle of a sentence, she said, well, no, I'm not climbing on the regret train. And I thought, well, there's, there's a title. <laughs> the, punching my ticket on the regret train. Might be I, a song. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm taking that one. That's great. So that's Did just, you tell her? Did oh, yeah. You, oh, yeah. No, no. <laughs> she throws those things off so, so fast. She is, I've stolen lots of stuff from her. She'll describe something. She says, oh, no, I'd crawl across cut glass for that. Wow. That's wonderful. She she said once she described somebody who was so crazy, she said, they, he needs machinery. Oh! <laughs> oh! Uh, all right, Ange, you got one? You want me to go? Uh, you go first. I'll just say I just met with a... Um, oh, I'm going to mess up exactly what she is, but she does. She works on cold cases. She's an investigator uh -huh, yeah. cold cases, and she's been informing me for for my book. and uh, And she she gave me a um, redacted uh, accident report. So I'm actually this is not super literary, but I'm I'm really excited about kind of perusing this document because I I have some pieces of this kind of thing in my book, and so I'm going to sort of read the accident report as a kind of as a document that I'm going to use in my book. Yeah, and and nobody, no literary person can write that badly. <laughs> so you have to go to the exact source, you well, know. Well, and I haven't read it yet, so I don't know. But it's interesting because yeah. there's also, there's like a checklist for like the weather conditions and the... Uh -huh. And the one really interesting thing she said, um, we were talking about a case where somebody drove into a tree on 12, and she said um, whether it's suicide or not, you know, they're not going to speculate about that at all in the accident report. The cause of accident has nothing to do with, with the, 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 the with, with the cause of the accident. They they're when they talk about cause, they're talking about the roads, the yeah. car, the whatever. But they're not talking about that piece, like the driver's intention, I guess, which is I thought was so interesting in terms of. Well, it's unknowable. For them, unless they left a note, right? Right, right. And well, they, you know, they, yeah. what she said is the coroner will decide that. The coroner will uh -huh, decide. I see. Intention, yeah. Intention. I, yeah, there's, there's more to... Like if there's no breaking. Yeah, if, they, if there was no breaking. The coroner's yeah. not going to find that out. But right? it's interesting. It's about a separation of, you know, responsibilities. And I think if you're trying to both interpret and capture... Right you are not going to necessarily be the person who's best to do Because you don't even know why there was no braking, right? There could be a turtle under the brake pedal. There could be a... T yeah, more probably they could have had a heart attack and passed out. Right, right. That's another <laughs> I haven't been in so many cars with turtles. <laughs> or or coronaries who were driving. Uh, I will say that. Have so. you? No. Oh. I haven't, no. <laughs> I was just being snide. My dad did have an experience with rescuing a turtle and then having it get under the brake. Oh, my God. Yeah, the car was jettisoning down the highway. Did he survive? Yes. Oh, good, he did. okay. He, he, well, he survived He survived that. that. I mean, he did eventually <laughs> die, but not of that. Not of turtle under the brake. <laughs> yeah. So, um... That's another great title, Turtle Under the Brake. <laughs> I have this thing about titles. Both my books have great titles, yeah. wouldn't you say? I never. Yeah. yeah, they really do, and I never think about titles. I'm I, I, although the, although this book that I'm finishing, God willing, um, I did have the title really early on. Uh -huh. I'm getting maybe, I'm, and the next one I. Have I made it. lists and lists, yeah. 50, 60, 70 names on a on a yellow pad. You know. My my first book, my agent called me. She's like, she said she said I'm ready to go out. And she called me. She said, 
We don't have a title. <laughs> I get ashamed that we got that far. So I had an English teacher in college who told me about the titling process, and a friend of his had sold a book to a publisher without a title, and the publisher said, uh, "Are there any drums in it?" He said, "No." Are there any trumpets in it? He said, "No." It was published under the title "No Drums, No Trumpets." <laughs> oh, that's terrible. <laughs> All right, you got anything for us? Uh, you know, I'm about to do some cover letter writing for the film festival application process, and so I'm going to steal the reframe. We'll just call it the Paul Newman oh. reframe from now on. Right. Uh-huh. Right. Oh, you mean for your own film application letter? Yeah, yeah. you have to write a little letter when you submit to festivals and, and whatever. And I think just the idea of like, because I watched the film, and a friend of mine asked me before we screened it for the casting crew, she was saying well, how do you feel about it? And I started thinking about, oh, well, what are other people going to think? And I was like, I love it. Like, I love my little film. So you made the film you wanted to make. I, I really did. That's a triumph. And it, it is, right? It's yeah, it is. And so I feel really great about it. Um, and so I think connecting with that when I write my letter, rather than trying to feel like I'm coercing people into liking something. Much stronger. I'll tell you, I, I, I don't mean to name drop it. It's important to know that somebody who knows said this. Yeah. So Roman Polanski once said to me, he said, the difference between amateur and professional filmmakers is an amateur makes the first cut of their film and they see how uh, terrible it is and they get completely discouraged. Mm -hmm. And a professional sees the first cut and sees how terrible it is and they get down to work. Mm. Oh, I like that. That's so good. Yeah. yeah. And this was a long editing process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there's the thing about you can do it, like it can be cheap or good or so it's fast. So filmmaking triangle. So at one point at the apex, you have like fast and then the other corner you have good and the other corner you have cheap. And it can be <laughs> fast and good, but it won't be cheap. Or it can right. be cheap and good, but it won't be fast. I it see. can be fast and cheap, but it won't be good. So wow. that's a little filmmaking trying. So, uh, I never heard that yeah. before. That's great. So this was slow, and we we were hoping it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, it's so thrilling to talk with you. And um, is there any place you want to send listeners to find your work or? A bookstore. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. All these. My two books are on Amazon, and they're still both in print. Um, if you enjoy them. I have a website, www.petercoyote.com, which has excerpts of them if you want to test the water before you go out and buy them. <laughs> and, um, yeah, you can also, if you read it and love it or hate it, you can send me a, an email through my website, and it will actually come to me. <laughs> there are no minions and legions of minders. And so I would be, I would be happy to know anybody's impression of anything I wrote. Fabulous. Well, thank you so, so much. Oh, this was so much fun. <laughs> <laughs>